Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. Would secession work in the United States? Well, one scholar says secession is legal, but it wouldn't work. So let's talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that. But also, go to brianmcclanahan.com. Click on that support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. Or go to YouTube. Click on the little heart button under the video, the super thanks button. Or... You can go to Spotify for podcasters and subscribe there. Lots of great ways to support the show financially. You can also click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com or go to learntruehistory.com, T-R-U-E, learn true history. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can and comment on YouTube for the algorithm and send me those show requests if you want to hear something special. All right, let's talk about the topic that I opened the show with, which is secession again. I mean, this is something we talk about a lot on this show, but um, the mere fact that people are talking about secession the way they're talking about it now um, is, I think, really remarkable. I've said this before. You wouldn't have seen this 30 years ago. You wouldn't have seen it until the possibly the mid-1990s. You started seeing more interest in the topic. And that's because, of course, of the, the secession of the Soviet states from the Soviet Union. And then the dissolution of the Soviet Union, which of course led to more interest in international discussion of secession. But now we're talking about it in the U.S. Um, I've mentioned before on this show uh, many times uh, what I think about it. But I'm going to talk about this piece that appeared in The Hill. There's a, there's a new academic book. It's actually a textbook on secession. Remarkable. right? I mean, this, this really is remarkable. It's an entire textbook dedicated to an international study of secession. And that's something you never would have seen in, say, 2000 or 1995 or 1999. Here we are in the 21st century, the 2020s, and we have an actual textbook that's being taught potentially in university classes on secession. And it's from a global perspective. And it actually covers many different facets of secession, how it works, how it doesn't work, what you have to do. I mean, this is not just a, an ideological look at whether secession is legal or not, or a legal basis, whether it's, you know, from a, from a legal perspective, what, you know, what, what secession is. This is how it's worked practically, what the opponents of it have said, what they I mean, what they've done, what they haven't done. This is an amazing thing. And the editor of the book, or at least I guess the, the, primary author, the, the compiler, is a professor at Syracuse University. And he simply says that, I mean, essentially argues secession is a, a 
works. I mean, it works around the world. He doesn't think it's going to work in the United States, but it works around the world. Now, I would disagree with him on some things that he says about the U.S., and I'll get into that. But I think it's remarkable, again, that you have a, a real academic discussion of secession now. It's something people are talking about. It's something that people are interested in. It's something that is, is becoming less and less taboo. In other words, this Lincolnian myth of large nation states is breaking down around the world. And super states, I think, is more important. The United States is a super state. And this is the way people think about it. The United State is really what they think of it as, as a super state. And you have these here, of course. You have one in China. But is the super state starting to break down? Are people starting to go back to this idea that what we need is more and more decentralization, more and more localism? And I mean, can we can we do that now based on the fact that a lot of people have uh, or a lot of people are looking more at pacifism? We're not going to invade somebody else because we don't like them. I mean, is that becoming more and more important? Now, we can see in, in of course, Russia and Ukraine we still have this issue of secession. You had a, a part of Ukraine wanted to break away and join Russia. Ukraine didn't want to do that. And so, of course, Ukraine's a breakaway state from the Soviet Union anyway. So now you have these two different things going on there. Russia says this part is part of Russia. And now Ukraine's part of Russia. Ukraine's saying, no, that's part of Ukraine. And Ukraine's not part of Russia. I mean, so you get into this kind of thing. And you can still see this stuff happening. But maybe not as frequent. The problem is we have the super states, we have the super nation states, and we still have this perspective on empire that hasn't necessarily gone away, that was unleashed uh, in the 19th century. And these larger and larger super states. So maybe we're going to see more decentralization. I don't know. I mean, we could argue uh, is decentralization in one area good or bad, or what should we do here? These are all things we can have conversations about. And again, we can calculate the value of union in the United States, but we should never say that secession is treason or that it's illegal. We can calculate whether it's valuable to hang on to the union, whether it's a good idea to hang on to the union, but that's a whole other conversation. Now, this particular scholar doesn't think the United States should break up. He also doesn't think it's possible in the U.S., and I think that's where I disagree with him, that it could be possible in the U.S. because he uses some pretty weak arguments against it. But at least he's involved in engaging in the conversation. He's not saying that um, this is uh, something that's illegal or treason. He's not saying that at all. Just maybe we don't need to do that. That's a, that's a whole other conversation. So... The title of this piece it was actually published at The Hill by Ryan D. Griffiths. And again, he's a professor at Syracuse University. He says, sometimes secession works, why it won't work for the U.S. So from the title, sometimes secession works. There are places this is a good idea. There are places where secession is just fine. But why it won't work for the United States is his opinion. He says, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene's February tweet calling for a national divorce to separate by red states and blue states was widely criticized, with Senator Mitt Romney calling it insanity. Nevertheless, the pronouncement does resonate with a sizable percentage of the American electorate. Recent movements like Yes, California, amazing, he actually goes right to California. He doesn't point out Texas or he doesn't go into you know something with the South. He goes to a leftist state like California and says, this is a pretty important movement here in California. 
have called for national divorce along political lines, and Frank Buckley's American Secession argues that it's the right solution to growing, growing polarization. The Buckley book's pretty good. Uh, Frank Buckley is a Canadian, I believe, and he's friends with Don Livingston, and uh, they've talked a lot about secession. So again, having more of these things mainstream gets a conversation going. You're still going to have people that oppose it. You're still going to have people say it's not the right thing to do. But what I find interesting about Griffiths is he's not calling these people traitors. He's not bashing them as neo-Confederates or anything stupid like that. He's just saying, okay, so we have some people that believe in this. Should this happen in the U.S.? Is it a good idea here? A March Axios poll shows that 20% of Americans favor a national divorce. Uh, I would say that number is actually higher depending on where you are and by political group. So he says, while this statement is largely the result of pronounced political polarization, it is a bad idea. It is the wrong solution to a real problem. So he's saying we do have political polarization. We have a real problem here. That's not the problem, though. The problem is centralization. The problem is nationalism in America. I've said this over and over again. The problem is Lincolnian nationalism. When we have one-size-fits-all solutions to problems that don't really work that way, then we have political polarization. That's the real issue. If you want to get to the heart of it, it's unconstitutional government. It's extreme centralization. It's the United States. It's the super state that's the problem in America. Not the differences in political beliefs. We've had that since the 17th century in the British North American colonies. We had different cultures setting up here. And I'm going to get into this because he, he, doesn't, he doesn't believe this. He says, advocates of secession in America typically make one of two arguments. The first argument stresses irreconcilable differences in ideology. So-called red state and blue state Americans take fundamentally opposed positions on matters such as abortion, gay rights, and the environment. Rather than work through these issues, it is best if these two sides acknowledge the cleavage and separate. So we have the culture war. The culture war is driving secession. I mean, that's always been at the heart of secession, a culture war. Puritans against Cavaliers or Northerners against Southerners and how they had different worldviews. And that, of course, we get tied up in all kinds of things. Uh, you know, immediate issues like slavery, but also economics, which was a larger issue, the nature of the Constitution, the nature of the Union, which was at stake in the entire argument. That was the core of all of that, right? I've said this before. It was always about power, and it was always about the nature of the Union, and it was always about the power of the central government and the Constitution. That was the real issue from the time the Constitution was ratified until 1861, when all the southern states were out of the Union that decided to secede. It was about power and the nature of the Constitution and the nature of the Union. All the other issues were surface issues compared to that. They could use these other things, but that was the core. It was a political dispute. So we have this culture war, right? And that's manifested in power. What can the central government do? We didn't have a powerful central authority that, that could unconstitutionally do all these things. And none of these issues would really be national, quote-unquote, issues anyways. They would all be at the state and local level. And what everybody, as long as your state's okay, you wouldn't really care what happens in this state or another state in the United States. You just worry about your state. The second argument is that smaller states are better because they are more ideologically and culturally homogenous. In their 2003 book, The Size of Nations, 
Alberto Alessia and Enrico uh, Spolar, I guess is how you say his name, contended that the main benefit of smallness is that it brings the center decision-making closer to local preferences. So he's using this academic book. I've never read this, The Size of Nations. But look, people like Kirkpatrick Sale, the Abbeville Institute, I mean, we've, we've been talking about this stuff for years, long before 2003. Uh, in fact, you go back to this argument, you know, small is beautiful, you get back into the 1970s. People were making these arguments for you know half a century, pretty much. But even before that, when you start looking at the size of republics and what's the ideal republic, and these go back into the Greeks even, you have these arguments. So this isn't anything new. The size of a state matters. So then Griffith says, in my book, Secession in the Sovereignty Game, Strategy and Tactics for Aspiring Nations, I, I argue that it's difficult and sometimes tortured, it's a difficult and sometimes tortured process, and he's talking about secession. Most secessionist efforts fail, and many of them result in violence. Secession can be a good solution in the right circumstances. South Sudan joined the international community after decades of conflict with Sudan. Bougainville may become the next sovereign state in the coming years, a happy outcome for the Bougainvillians who fought a brutal civil war against Papua New Guinea in the 1990s. There are roughly 70 contemporary secessionist movements in the world, and some percentage of them will achieve their goal. So again, he's looking at this from a global perspective. What's going on around the world, an international perspective? Secession is not just United States. Secession is things that happen all over the place. And should we think that some of these movements, is this treason? Should we, should we call it that? Or is it self-determination? How should we look at this? What he does not do in this entire piece is, is call out the Yes California people as treason, treasonous. He doesn't do that at all. He doesn't call out any of these secessionists in America as traitors because he's looking at this in the proper way. This is about self-determination. He says, but to propose secession as a solution to American polarization is to misdiagnose the problem. And every contemporary secessionist movement from the, uh, from the Catalans to the Kurds, there is a distinct nation or ethnic group that is regionally concentrated. These nations can differentiate themselves from the majority nation of the state by pointing to linguistic or religious or historical cultural differences. This is not the case in America. This is where I would strongly disagree with Professor Griffiths. If you go back and look, and, I, and I've often shown this map, look at the 2000 census. Now, I know this was 23 years ago, but not much has changed because they don't ask this question anymore. But you look at the 2000 census, and they asked you in the 2000 census, what is your ethnic background? Essentially, what is your origin? What do you call yourself? And so if you look at the map and how that shook out, what you see on that map are regional differences. In the South, they called themselves Americans, and there's a big group there. In New England, they called themselves, they had English origins, and you have this New England group. Then you had a whole bunch of people saying they were Germans all throughout the middle part of the United States. You had people that were saying in, of course, parts of Arizona, California, New Mexico, Texas, they were citing uh, Hispanic origin. You had pockets of American Indian. You had things in the United States that showed regional and cultural differences. And we know they're there. You see, there is a southern region. There is a New England region. There is a Midwestern region. There's a Western region. There's a Far West. There's a Southwest. We know that these things exist. 
And so we have these units in America as states. We have these things called states. And so that's a convenient way to manifest these things. But we also know that there could be regional diversification. There could be regional governments. In 1930, when the fugitives wrote, I'll take my stand, they talked about regional governments. They did it as well in, in Who Owns America. Regional governments, some type of regional check on centralized power. This is, this is very Calhoun-esque, right, to have a dual presidency. We talked about that uh, a couple of weeks ago with the, uh, with the article on John C. Calhoun and the dual presidency. And actually, a conservative saying, hey, you know, having Calhoun uh, isn't necessarily a bad idea. The concurrent majority, having some type of check from a minority on the will of just a simple numerical majority. Something to stop the tyranny of the majority. But we do have regional and historical cultural differences. Clearly, Professor Griffiths has never read David Hackett Fisher's Albion Seed. If he had, he wouldn't say there's no historical cultural differences in America. They exist, and they've existed for 400 years. That's something that's very important to understand. This is why I say if you're going to read one book on American history, Read Albion Seed by David Hackett Fisher. It's the one book you have to read. I mean, you can read all kinds of other stuff, but that book, and look, when I was younger, I didn't like cultural history that much. I thought it was kind of boring. But because I wanted to read about battles and political conflicts and all that kind of stuff. All the hot air, and then, all, of course, all the hot lead, right? That's what I wanted to read about. But what you find is at the core of all of that is this cultural... Uh, cultural diversity, it's a real diversity in America, and that the Federated Republic was supposed to be able to handle those cultural differences in a way that would not lead to bloodshed. It's very important to understand in American history. So he says, consider the first argument regarding ideological differences. Although many Americans do identify strongly as blue Democrats or red Republicans, well, that term red Republicans always makes me laugh. Because there really were red Republicans, capital, in the, in the middle of the 19th century, coming out of these uh, revolutions of 1848. And in fact, Judah P. Benjamin wrote a letter to James Byard uh, in, uh, at the beginning of, of the war, 1861. The war hadn't started yet, 1861, where he said, One day, uh, maybe you will be, will be rid of our uh, curse of black Republicans and you of red Republicans, right? They, they pointed to uh, these communists, these Marxists that had infiltrated the Republican Party and the Red Republicans. I mean, there was this this um, this belief that there were these socialists in the Republican Party. So I always laugh at Red Republicans. These individuals are not neatly sorted into, into specific regions. Many Americans hold moderate and somewhat flexible political views. And there is no ethno-national divide that corresponds with partisanship. Well, I mean, I agree with this, right? You have... You have uh, conservatives, quote-unquote, liberals, all over, progressives, all over the United States in different pockets. But you do have dominant groups in states. States are sovereign political communities. And those political communities you do have in certain parts. I mean, California is primarily, quote-unquote, blue. You do have pockets of red in California, but California itself is dominated by blue in a place like Alabama is dominated by red. You have pockets of blue, certainly, but it's dominated by red. You could say the same thing in 
many other states. Now, some states it's a lot closer. Uh, the divide isn't so neat and clean. You have a you have a pretty large uh, um, gray area there in these states. But in many states, you don't have that. So these states, as sovereign political communities, uh, do have dominant groups. He says a secessionist divide into a larger blue or larger red state would therefore require an unmixing of the two populations in which dissatisfied families would have to re- relocate to the preferred state. No, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. I mean, this this again is a bad argument because even in the in 1816 61, we'll just take the the example in the United States where we actually had secession. There were people in in Georgia that didn't agree with secession, a pretty strong and vocal minority. There were people in Alabama that didn't agree with secession. There were certainly people in Virginia who didn't agree with secession. People in North Carolina didn't agree with it. People in all the southern states that didn't agree with secession. They're a pretty vocal minority in some cases. But yet, when the, when the act took place, many of them just joined in with the majority because, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is what we have to do. We're now you know, part of this government of course, our state, which we have allegiance to, our loyalties to our state, has decided to do this. So you don't have to have partition, which is what he says would happen. He said this is called partition, and it only happens in war-torn societies such as India, Pakistan, and Cyprus, which were impaired by ethnic cleansing. So he's saying that partition is, is what you would face if you have to... But you don't have to in this case. You can have diversity of political opinion within a seceded state. If the majority, which do we believe a majority rule? Do we believe in democracy? I mean, if the people through self-determination, through a convention, which is how it has to happen, it can't be from the legislature, but the people decide to do this, well then, you would, the people that don't agree with it, they could move if they want to, but they could also live there and be part of that state. He says, simply put, secession is a political solution for an ethno-national problem among regionally concentrated populations. The problem in America is one of political polarization. So he's saying secession can only happen if we have these determined ethnic groups. However, again, he's missing the point in the United States, you actually have regional cultures and those things matter. We just don't, tr- we just don't see it as much anymore. Now consider the second argument on the virtues of smallness. It is true that smaller political units can bring decision-making closer to home. This is one of the key arguments for federalism, one that was highlighted as early as the Federalist Papers. So again, he doesn't really understand American history because federalism was highlighted long before that. In fact, when there was a first attempt at some kind of union in the British North American colonies in 1754, it was said that the colonies are too provincial. They, They don't like each other because there was already this federal model in America. New England didn't want to be, or Massachusetts, I should say, didn't want to be governed by uh, Virginia and vice versa. And even within the New England states, Rhode Island didn't want to be governed by Massachusetts or Connecticut. I mean, you, you had that. So you already had federalism, we just didn't call it that yet, taking place in America long before that. It's why... Um, when you look at Jack Green's works, I mean, this is this is very important uh, on on uh, American constitutionalism. He points out how federalism already was the model in America long before they called it that. The United States Constitution provides a mechanism for determining at 
what level state or federal decisions should be made. Well, I agree. I mean, th this is this is correct if we actually had people that believed in it in Washington, D.C. But again, this comes down to education. And I've said this before. When I've said Americans aren't ready for secession and what would come, I mean, there has to be a major shift, an economic dislocation, something bad happening for people to really want to get on board with this because they're just too into the system. But this all starts with education. The fact that here in 2023, we have a mainstream academic simply saying, yeah, I mean, he's not, he, notice again, he hasn't brought up treason one time. He hasn't said, well, it's unconstitutional. It's treason to do this. He hasn't said that at all. He's just saying he doesn't think it would work here. It's not a good idea here in the United States. Again, we can have that discussion. We can say, well, you're right or wrong about that. But he's never one time said it's illegal or treason. Not at all. He's saying, look, we already have a federal system here. We should try to work within that to try to solve these political differences. This is think locally, act locally is all he's saying, which I agree. But you've got to get people believing in that. And it has to come through education. And it has to come from the bottom up. All this has to happen from the bottom up. The center is never going to do any of this. It has to all, I mean, secession by, by default is a bottom-up movement, but it's never going to happen any other way. He says, it's already a system in place for striking a balance between the powers of local and national governments. Why not work within that system rather than go down a path that is uncertain and full of peril? Again, I mean, uh, okay, we, we, can, we can say that. Uh, why don't we work within you know, the federal system? I agree. I mean, we should be pursuing all methods of decentralization. That could be local government, state government, whatever it is. Additionally, although marital divorce is often compared to secession, it's a poor analogy. Whereas the process of divorce is controlled by domestic law, there is no decided upon law that governs secession. There is no worked out procedure, let alone precedent for dividing the estate. How should national debt be distributed? What about Social Security? What about national defense and the American military? Well, there would have been a, a situation with that if Lincoln and Seward hadn't blocked it in 1861. Southerners were trying to work this stuff out. They could have done it then, but Lincoln chose war, right? Lincoln chose war. So that's the real issue. This is why even people like Cynthia Nicoletti and others are saying, we need to come up with, there has to be a legal discussion about this. What do we do? Should have gone to Congress, maybe. Should something else should have happened? Not the way it happened in 1861. War should never have happened. A pernicious problem with secession is the minority with a minority problem. Since not everyone will be happy with the state they're seceding into, they should not be given... Should they not be given the right to secede themselves? There is a recursive character to secession, one that was noted by President Abraham Lincoln when he criticized the Confederacy. To paraphrase him, it was better to choose blood than risk continued dissolution. No, but that's not, I mean, this is it's funny he brings this up because a county seceding from the state is different from a state seceding from the Union in this way. The state is the building block of both. The state created the counties. The state also created the center. So, for a county to secede, that would be a whole different thing than a state seceding. Again, you have to we work within the framework that we have. Now, we could talk about counties and more decentralization, how that would work too. But in the United States, we have state secession because we have states as the building blocks. This is important. And choosing blood, I mean, this is, this is a weak argument from Lincoln. that We're just going to have continued anarchy. We wouldn't have had that. Right? Again, because states are the building blocks. Griffiths then says, secessionist ambitions produce further polarization. A common refrain from Scots and uh, Catalans in recent years is that the loudest voices on both sides of the debate are typically the most radical and that they have lost friends and family members in the resulting polarization. So because people get upset about each other and we've lost friends and family members, 
we shouldn't talk about secession. These people on the radical end. I mean, this is always the case, right? I mean, it was the case in the American War for Independence. You had those that were pushing loudest for it who got their way. Most Americans were in the middle. They didn't, they didn't have strong feelings on this. Same thing you could probably say in 1860 and 61 too, though you had larger majorities in favor of secession at that point than you did in 1776. He says, finally, secession regularly produces violence. Political scientist Barbara Walter claimed that secession is the chief source of violence in the world today. It is a divisive process full of uncertainty. But it only produces violence because we have this Lincolnian view of the state and, of course, power. If we reformed how we think about that, I mean, it doesn't have to produce violence. In fact, secession should be a very peaceful thing. We don't want to be part of this anymore. Let's just separate and, and get along. I mean, this is, this is, again, he uses some pretty weak arguments against it. Though uh, they're the typical arguments. He says, there are strong arguments for why America should stay together. The country is a global leader, an advocate for democracy and individual freedom, and a military power that can deter foreign aggression. These capabilities would all be diminished if the country split up. I mean, so he's just making an argument to keep the union together. Again, we can calculate the value of union. But what I like about this, he never says it's illegal, and he never says it's treason. He actually just says... Maybe it's not a good idea. Maybe there are some things we should think about this. Maybe we should pump the brakes on this kind of stuff. But actually writing a textbook and coming out and talking about it in a very rational way is a major step forward. This is where you know Richard Kreitner and others on the left, I applaud them for doing this, just having a rational conversation about this. It doesn't have to be so hyperbolic and ridiculously stupid. We can have a real conversation. The current polarization in America is a problem, but it is one that needs to be worked out through dialogue. Frank discussions and counseling are a better solution than divorce. Again, so uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting piece. I found this, that I, I, again, I applaud The Hill for publishing something like this, saying, hey, we should be talking about this stuff. Let's do it in a way that is not uh, immediately calling the people that believe in something like this traitors or you know bad Americans or bad actors, neo-Confederates, whatever it is. Griffiths is simply saying, I don't think this should happen in America. I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think it can work in America. Again, we can disagree with him, and I do disagree with him on some of these things. But to simply have the, the conversation is a major step forward in that an academic press and a group of academics from around the world, I, think, uh, I, don't, I don't think Griffiths is from the United States, or maybe he is, but he's taught internationally before, to have a real conversation on this is a real step forward uh, in, in the discussion of self-determination and decentralization. So uh, a, a really interesting piece in The Hill. I wanted to bring it to your attention. I'll see you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.